for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with Your Financial Editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And also you can get the Your Financial Editor program as a uh, uh, podcast from iTunes. So uh, happy May to you, kicking off the uh, the new month. I hope your weekend's going well. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good program planned for you. Some really interesting top stories, some economic data that was uh, good, some that was definitely not so good. Also joining me in just a little bit, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're going to be talking about Biden's American Families Plan um, and what's in it and how in the heck it's going to be paid for, along with all the other trillions of dollars that are being printed and pushed out uh, into the economy and into people's pockets, uh, some or a lot of people's pockets that uh, aren't targeted that really need it. A lot of payback, a lot of buy-offs, if you will. So we'll be talking about all that stuff with my guest, um, again, from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark Goldwyn is going to be my guest in just a little bit. Some of the top stories, a couple of them actually that really related to Wall Street this week. Uh, The new Securities and Exchange Commission chairman, Gary Gensler, um, things aren't going so good for him so far. His top appointee for enforcement director, her name is Alex O, uh, announced that she was going to be the enforcement director less than two weeks ago, has already resigned. So he pushed really hard to put her in this position. Uh, The stunning turnaround came after a federal judge reprimanded her and others um, for uh, their role as lawyers um, in a class action lawsuit. And um, just really, the the federal judge just tore to pieces. So uh, she handed in her resignation letter saying that in light of the time and attention it will take for her, um, she's reached the conclusion that she cannot address uh, what's going on without becoming um, this becoming an unwelcome distraction to the important work of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So this was just a total crash and burn for uh, Gary Gensler. Um, and like I had mentioned, he was already under pressure for this. Uh, Gensler is part of the swamp. He was the chairman of the CFTC uh, when Obama was in office. So he was appointed uh, by Obama. And then before that, he was a partner at Goldman Sachs. Um, so he's got a net worth of, it sounds like, north of uh, $115 million. Um, and here he is again back in politics. So you have to wonder... Um, why someone who already served in government came out, made even more money, wants to go back into government. Is it for money once again? You have to wonder for sure. Um, Also, we saw this week uh, an interesting development on Wall Street. J.P. Morgan, um, who the CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, first really put uh, Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies in the gutter Uh, Back in, say, like 2017, where some of these 
uh, cryptos were really starting to rally and get a little bit of uh, of traction. And he was uh, down talking, downplaying uh, all of these currencies. Well, now um, J.P. Morgan has announced that they're going to launch their own actively managed Bitcoin fund. So that just makes uh, J.P. Morgan the latest U.S. bank to really accept and participate in crypto assets and uh, their uh, investments. So um, a total turnaround there in a handful of years. And uh, it's just interesting. I'm not a big cryptocurrency guy. The main reason is I don't understand it. Um, I think it's very, very hard to, to comprehend right now. I think it's going to be easier as the blockchain is uh, learned more about and um, you'll be able to kind of justify the price of um, a, a cryptocurrency. But again, to me right now, it's just very, very hard. It's I still think it looks like the wild, wild west. Um, however, there are a lot of people who uh, do very well in cryptocurrency, and uh, and I guess they do understand it, or they just uh, you know have that mentality that they just want to grab a hold of something because of its momentum. So uh, now you've got these bigger players, uh, Tesla, of course, and Elon Musk, the founder, founder and CEO, um, was definitely um, a, a boost for Bitcoin this year when it was disclosed in their earnings that they had purchased $1.5 billion of the currency. And you have others also coming out saying you can buy our car or our product or our widget or our service with cryptocurrency. So I think we're going to learn more and more about it. But this was a major turnaround with uh, the biggest bank on Wall Street for J.P. Morgan to do this. You know, people are saying that we don't have any inflation uh, issues. Uh, the ridiculous word that the Fed continues to use is transitory. Uh, but that's just because, it, in my opinion, want to make you feel stupid. Um, but what I saw this week was the agriculture spot index surged the most in nearly nine years. So this week we saw a big rally in crop futures. You've got global food prices already at the highest since uh, mid-2014. This jump in prices, in my opinion, really has to be watched closely um, it was said this week that it's pushing a basic meal beyond the reach of millions of poor families who were already struggling to get by. Uh, and commodities aren't the only component in driving up the price of food because you have higher freight costs, uh, you have supply chain issues, and um, all of that adds up to higher costs for people. Inflation. That's what this is. So Nestle, the world's biggest food company, warned that it won't be able to hedge against all of its commodity costs, and they're going to be raising prices where it's appropriate. This is the, like I said, Nestle is the world's biggest food company. And this week we saw corn futures up, wheat futures up, soybean futures, live cattle, lean hogs, uh, you name it. So... Higher prices are coming. I was speaking to some people this week, and, you know, of course, they're already experiencing that at the grocery store. They're, we're already experiencing that at the gas pump. That was just because of the idiotic um, 
reversal of the XL Keystone Pipeline, which we've talked about here on the program, um, about America being energy independent and having more control over cost. Well, when that gets taken away, as I've always said, some 23 years on this program, who does it hurt? It's an immediate tax. All right. This isn't something that you wait to happen. You go to fill your vehicle up or you go to the grocery store. It's it's immediate. The impact on you and your family. Who does it hurt? Hurts the poor people. Hurts people on fixed incomes. The people who really we need to care about and uh, target our resources as far as um, resources because they don't have them. Uh, that's who it hurts the most. And I know people game the system all the time and sign up for five different food pantries and all that. And there's probably a special place for them. But for the people that really need it, you know, it's it's a shame to see this kind of stuff. And for people to act like we don't have any inflationary pressure and what is, is temporary. Prove it. Beyond the word transitory, prove it. Um, Something really cool I saw this week, recreation vehicles are hitting the roads at a pace never seen before as the virus has driven more Americans to explore the country. So total RV shipments in March were up 79% from just a year earlier to 54,291 units just in one month. That was according to information I saw from the RV Industry Association. Um, They reached a quarterly record of 148,507 units during the first three months of this year. And according to the CEO of the RV Industry Association, he was saying that many Americans have discovered for the first time that an RV is the perfect way to get the most out of the great outdoors. So I thought that was really a, a neat story. Um, And actually one we haven't heard since, you may remember this, you go back to the horrific uh, tragedy of 9-11, September 11th, 2001, after the terrorist attacks, when so many people were fearful. Uh, They didn't want to go get on a plane and go outside the country. They didn't know if it was safe in other countries. So they decided to do this exact same thing where you saw um, RV sales and in-country vacationing really picked up. And let's face it, there is so much to see in this country that you probably don't have enough time during our lives to appreciate all of the things here uh, before we go out of the country uh, to do something different. So I I thought the RV story was a very good story and, and interesting as well and good for them and their industry. Um, And I hope they continue to do well. As far as the economic data that we got this week, um, consumer confidence, the the information that came from the conference board uh, was very, very good. It it actually went, it it surged, I should say, from a reading of 113 to 121.7. I mean, that's just a blowout number. and and again, I think it's because people feel like I'm just going to get back to living the way I want. I'm going to go where I want to go. And now I have more places to go because of these uh, ridiculous mandatory shutdowns, which um, I forget the guy's name off the top of my head. But he actually 
trademarked the phrase, we will look at this in the United States of America, meaning once the virus got here from China and we shut everything down. He said, we will look at this in the history of the United States of America and realize it was the worst self-inflicted economic damage in the history of the country, maybe the history of the world. And I give him a lot of credit for, uh, for you know, thinking that way and actually trademarking it because I think he's exactly right. Total overshoot, total abuse of power. And again, this consumer confidence is showing you that people are sick of it. They want to get back to work. They want to get back to going out to dinner, shopping, and not where they're told to go, which that was all just picking winners and losers, which the government is terrible at doing that. Terrible. So um, that was good to see. Consumer confidence is up. Durable goods orders were expected to rebound strongly um, in March, but they disappointed. So they only came in showing a half of a percent rise for the month. Economists were looking for 2.3%, and we only get half of a percent. So that's uh, not good. Not good at all. Demand for uh, mortgage applications decreased 2.5% from one week earlier, according to the most recent data from the Mortgage Bankers Association's weekly mortgage application survey. That was for the week that ended April 23rd, by the way. So um, even though you had interest rates creep down just a little bit, it didn't really help that much with mortgage applications. And also the refi index was down 1% as well. Then when you looked at GDP, gross domestic product, for the first quarter, um, people were talking about basically the consensus was a 6.6% annualized growth rate, which is very, very good in normal situations, but there were whispers of double-digit growth. Why? Because of the trillions of dollars that's already been poured into the economy and more coming. So we get 6.4%, which wasn't even the 6.6 that was anticipated. So I, I thought that was disappointing. And even though this whole economic growth is fake. It's not organic. It's not natural growth. It has to do with, again, these government assistance payments, um, whether it's an impact payment, expended, excuse me, expanded unemployment benefits, the, what did we have? The pay, paycheck protection program loans. Um, all that money was kicked out to households and it didn't create the gross domestic product for our economy, the economic growth that it should have. So, like I said, I think that was pretty disappointing. Um, speaking of disappointing, pending home sales, disappointed in March. Now, you know, again, realtors are saying, look, we have low inventory. And that is just a real, real big problem, especially in the existing home sales space. Uh, what did we were talking last week here on the program? 2.1, so nine weeks worth of inventory, if I remember correctly, uh, just over two months. You really should have five to six months of inventory for a healthy, normal type of um, 
housing market, and we just haven't seen that. But home prices, when you look at the latest Case and Schiller home price index and their data points, and it's just a lagger because this is back to February, but um, home prices were up just shy of 12% for year over year from February 20 to February 21, up almost 12%. Um, and even the cheapest homes in America are growing at about four times the Federal Reserve's inflation target of around 2%. So, you know, it really is not discriminating when it comes to these higher housing prices. Uh, everybody's getting to uh, to participate. So um, that was really interesting to see. We're going to take a quick break. I uh, just want to let you know uh, the latest complimentary takeaway we have for you at murrayfinancialgroup.com is the value of an objective opinion. Why objective financial advice is important. Um, it's about four pages. It's a easy, fairly quick read, but it's also got a lot of good stuff in those pages for you. So you go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Right on the home page, you just scroll down a little bit. There's a button you hit, and you'll get your instant download. It talks about the importance of timing, the importance of income planning, uh, the value of an independent opinion, those types of things, and it's complimentary. Again, you go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, and uh, it's right on the home page for you, and it downloads immediately to your uh, email. So enjoy that. Uh, That's what it's there for, for you to benefit and enjoy from. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD and at WFMD.com and as a podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Uh, I was just going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff we heard from the Fed uh, this week and um, get ready for our conversation with my guests uh, Mr. Mark Goldwing, um, he is a senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, uh, which we all, I think, would agree we desperately need. Uh, but we're going to be talking about these crazy spending uh, plans that and, 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 and bills that are getting pushed through uh, with no bipartisanship and who knows how much damage it's going to do to the country short, medium, and long term. But we're going to be talking about that in just a couple minutes. Um, When we look at the Fed, one thing I wanted to talk about, this week the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank uh, came out with their manufacturing activity index. uh, And that's a big part of our area, uh, the local broadcasting area. I know we have people around the country uh, that have moved and still continue to listen at WFMD.com and as a podcast. But, you know, when we look at these various districts, uh, or when I do, one of them definitely is Richmond. And it's the fifth district out of 12. And it showed that manufacturing activity was staying strong. 
So the composite index held steady at a reading of 17. That indicates continued growth. Uh, All three component indexes, shipments, new orders, and employment remain positive. So it was a really good report. The only problem that I saw was a lot of the people that responded to the survey, these businesses, indicated supply constraints. So basically backlog of orders, uh, vendor lead time uh, indexes were registering historic highs. So there's definitely some bottlenecking that's going on across the country. Um, And I can, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you see these tractor trailers up and down the road like crazy. Of course, the uh, railways continue to be very, very busy. And then, of course, you've got the uh, the shipments via the sea. Um, they've been very busy. So because of all of this activity, you do have some backlogs and some problems in the distribution line for sure. So we had a two-day Federal Reserve meeting this week, uh, started on Tuesday, ended on Wednesday. Um, After that, Jerome Powell, the chairman, came out and gave a press uh, conference and basically said that uh, there's some bottlenecking also in the Labor Department. And he said that's made it difficult um, for employers to hire workers even though we have this really high job uh, jobless rate. So he was saying, quote, my, let me see, I wrote this. My guess is uh, we'll come back down to this economy where we have equilibrium between labor supply and labor demand. It may take some months, though. And what I found very interesting is Powell said it was unclear to him whether the sweetened federal benefits – if they were affecting workers' hesitancy to return to their jobs. Well, let's see. If you can sit at home and make twice as much money, which some people are per hour, with the government handouts that weren't targeted the correct way, and then now with what they just did with extending this uh, to, what is I think it's to September. You're telling me it's unclear whether that's having an impact on people going back to work? I think that's a bold-faced lie. The um, policymakers did once again vote unanimously at the meeting to hold rates between zero and a quarter of a percent. And they're also going to keep spending $120 billion per month to prop up the financial markets and keep uh, borrowing uh, easy and cheap. Even though, like we spoke about earlier, you've got energy and food prices going up. Inflation impacting people who can't, they can't stand to be impacted. I'm telling you, these poor folks, elderly folks, people on fixed incomes. I mean, you're already crushing them if they're risk adverse. Maybe they grew up with a depression era mentality from their folks and they don't want to go into the stock market so they're savers they're not investors and what have you been doing for years you punish them where they can't get anything out of a cd or a money market you're trying to push them into the financial markets 
so that the markets look like they're doing better than they are, especially right now with all this money sloshing around, which we'll be talking about in just a little bit. But again, Powell and these other people um, in the Federal Reserve use these fancy words trying to confuse you like transitory, like this is going to go away. It's just a transition, but they won't expand beyond that. It's like quantitative easing and all the other jargon that they use. Um, And if inflation gets too far ahead of them, they're going to have a heck of a time trying to catch up, I can tell you. And it's going to be politically motivated and tied. And that's what's really, really scary. You know, the last person that came in, the Federal Reserve, who had the backbone to do what was necessary and really squash inflation was Paul Volcker. I mean, he cranked up interest rates. They were burning this guy in effigy. People hated him, but he had to do it because the Carter administration had allowed inflation to run rampant. And the only way of getting it down was to jack up interest rates to cause that pain to get prices back down and get people in line. Um, These people, they're nothing like that. You know, again, they're just, they want to be big and important and make money and set themselves up for down the road. Uh, They're just swamp people. And um, it's a shame, man. I mean, it really is that the average American just gets stepped on by these these just pathetic politicians and bureaucrats. Your Financial Editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. As always, if you're a new listener, welcome. Um, Or if you've been with us since I founded the program back in 1997, uh, thanks so much for uh, sticking with us and for helping to make the uh, program so successful. Um, I had mentioned before the break we were going to be talking uh, about this uh, government spending, some new stuff we heard about this week. Of course, last week we talked about uh, the things you need to know about the infrastructure spending with our friend David Ditch from the Heritage Foundation. And this week I'm happy uh, to have joining me Mr. Mark Goldwine. He is a senior vice president and senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. 
Uh, we've had some of Mark's colleagues on in the past. Mark, um, at the, uh, the, the, the think tank, basically, I guess is what we would call the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, is um, he guides and conducts research on a wide array of topics related to fiscal policy and the federal budget. He's done work for the uh, Government Accountability Office, the World Bank, Social Security. He also teaches economics at the University of California, D.C., and at Johns Hopkins University. Good morning, Mark. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're very busy, and uh, I know our listening audience is going to benefit greatly from this. So uh, thank you. Um, So... You know, we're all we're hearing about these last couple few months is spending, spending, spending. Um, you may have heard me say a moment ago last week uh, we focused on infrastructure and we did a deep dive into that. Um, and then this week, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget came out with uh, some immediate releases uh, for folks to really try to understand what has just popped up this week. Um, I guess overall, I'd just like to ask your uh, take on what we've seen in spending in general uh, and our country's reaction since the virus made its way here. Well, if you're talking about spending that's already happened, um, we spent a tremendous amount as a country. We've, we've, um, we've offered about $6 trillion of gross COVID relief. Some of that is spending, some of that is tax cuts, some of that is loans to help secure the economy and um, protect incomes, and ultimately support the recovery. Now, most of that, I mean, I I won't say there wasn't waste. There absolutely was. But most of that was sensible, worthwhile spending because we were in a crisis. Now that we're out of a crisis, there's talk of spending even more. And that gets me a little bit nervous. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of people nervous. And, you know, it's hard to get your arms around a trillion dollars. I mean, most people can't even fathom that. They become, I think numb to it almost and it's like oh okay they're going to spend more money but we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of new spending um i agree with you i've uh, wholeheartedly i mean if they're saying the other day that our gdp was up 6.4 percent even though that missed expectations um and that inflation's in check and employment's on its way back strongly and all the other things that they're saying um why would you continue to spend at these levels? So the spending that President Biden is proposing now isn't COVID relief. It's not really about economic recovery. It's, it's mostly about two things. On the one hand, it's about um, what the administration thinks is going to be long-term economic growth. Um, they're, they're making a lot of investments in, um, in roads, in climate change, in waterways, in um, early education that they think are going to pay off with faster economic growth. And then um, at the same time, it's a lot of spending meant to offer support to various parts of the economy, support for paid leave, um, support for um, people that have children, things like that. Um, each individual piece, I think, on its own, you could you could make a case for. Um, but when you put it all together um, between these two plans, the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, it's four point five trillion dollars of spending over a decade meaning we're going to spend as much more as a typical year of the federal budget um do you think it's the government's responsibility or just even place to invest in families 
Well, it depends what you mean. I think that the government has a very strong role to play in education, for example, and a lot of this money is going for universal pre-K. Um, I, I think that there's some holes in the market and things like paid, paid leave, and the economy could be better with a stronger paid leave system. I'm skeptical that the system that is being introduced is the right one. But I, I do think there's roles for government. I just, um, you know, I look at this package as a whole, and it's quite large, and I'm worried about what it's going to take to finance it. Um, so when you look at some of these uh, th- these areas, um, the nation's upcoming fiscal challenges uh, was the uh, paper that was released by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget on Thursday. Um, we'll just kind of go through this, if you don't mind, so you can help um, give our our listening audience, uh, kind of your take on these things, um, record debt levels, kind of what exactly does that mean? Where are we with these record debt levels? Sure. So look, the bigger your economy is, the more debt you can have the same way, the bigger your income, the bigger a mortgage you can have. And so the right way to measure debt isn't in trillions. It's relative to the size of your economy. And by that measure, debt is now larger than the economy for the first time since World War II. And by the end of this year, it's likely to hit a new record, be larger than its peak as a share of the economy. Um, beyond that, it's, it's on course to keep growing. Even if we don't pass any of these bills, Biden bills, even if we don't extend the Trump tax cuts that are mostly scheduled to expire, we still have debt headed towards twice the size of the economy within three decades. All right. What's that mean for our, for our listening audience? If you have debt twice the size of the uh, economy as far as our output— what does that mean? What's a result? Yeah, so there's, there's a few consequences um, of this high debt. I think one, one is what it does to the government and one is what it does to the economy. What it does to the government is we're going to pay more and more of our budget each year in interest payments. Um, you know, but within a few years, we're going to spend more in interest than we spend on kids. By the end of the decade, we're going to spend more in interest than we spend on defense. Within 25 years, the single largest federal government program will be interest on our debt not investing in the future, not protecting our country, not tax cuts, interest on the debt. At the same time, the more the federal government borrows from the private sector, the less the private sector is actually investing in things that are going to grow the economy, you know, in stocks, in bonds, in new ventures, in banks that can then um, give give loans. And so there's this what's called crowd-out effect that ultimately is going to lead to slower economic growth, um, slower wage growth, and lower incomes. And so, you know, fast forward 30 years in the future – Income per person is going to be $7,000 lower, and we're going to be spending, um, you know, the money that we lower than others would have been. And we're going to be spending the money we do gain on higher interest payments on our own debt. Uh, Speaking with my guest this morning, Mr. Mark Goldwine. He's a senior vice president and senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. I would encourage you to go to uh, crfb.org. And sign up for their free emails. They're full of uh, really interesting writings and uh, opinions and views and hard numbers, etc. So um, I would, again, encourage you to uh, to go check that out. Again, it is uh, crfb.org. And um, uh, so, Mark, I mean, one of those things, too, that you just said is if we fast forward 30 years into the future, and in did you say incomes are seven thousand dollars lower? Uh, we project, or the CBO estimates, incomes to be seven thousand lower per person than they otherwise would have been. Income is still going to grow because we are, 
you know, we're the United States of America. We are a growing country that it, um, benefits from productivity growth, but it's going to grow more slowly as a result of this death burden. Okay, so I guess my thing is, I'm, again, I'm trying to figure out if they're saying they're going to invest in kids when the kids are 30 years old, how are they going to be better off because of all of the spending? You know, that's what, that's one of the ironies of this whole thing. I, I do think that the administration has a really good point that the federal budget is so skewed towards seniors now. We spend $6 per senior for every $1 we spend per kids. Um, and so I do like that they're trying to reorient the budget a bit towards kids. But because they're doing it all through more spending and none of it through reallocating of spending, we're also leaving our kids with a huge mountain of debt. I don't think any plan can really restore generational justice if our kids are left with all of this debt. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, like, uh, even the, the youngsters now that, you know, have been getting these stimulus checks. Um, okay, so uh, my wife and I, we have a 23-year-old son. Uh, we have a 21-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. So our 21-year-old graduated from James Madison, went to work right away. He's never missed one day of work, and he's getting these stimulus checks. Our other son is 21. He's a United States Marine. He never missed one day of work. He gets these stimulus checks. How can we think that these programs are targeted and really going to the people that need it when, you know, we see these honest, um, you know, examples that I just mentioned? How, how does that work? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. So what you're talking about is not um, sort of the plan going forward, but these are the covid really stimulus checks. I was supportive of those checks a year ago today because the economy was in free fall and we didn't know who was going to be in work and who was going to be out of work and how long it was going to take for the unemployment system to figure it out. So I was a big supporter for that first round of $1,200 checks, but the subsequent rounds were more political than economic. The reason we got that $2,000 worth of checks is because, frankly, um, after they, we, they came to agreement on a bipartisan bill in December of last year, President Trump threw a temper tantrum and demanded them. And then Speaker Pelosi... And Chuck Schumer jumped on it, and then in the Georgia election, they promised it, and then President Biden had to deliver it. There was no economic reason for this next $2,000. It was completely political, and it really didn't belong. Yeah, yeah, and and just more debt and uh, more wasteful spending. So the second thing is uh, on or in the newsletter, uh, or excuse me, the the um, the paper was the end of discretionary spending caps. What does that mean? So for the for almost the last decade. Um, the appropriators every year have been limited in how much they can allocate um, for the Department of Defense and for other kind of core government functions, things like Department of Education, Department of State, Homeland Security, federal workers. They've had limits. And those limits, I think, have overall been helpful because they made it easier to reach bipartisan agreement because the, the appropriators don't have to fight over the level, just how to allocate it. And they've kept spending at least to some degree over con- under control, although we have increased these limits. Those caps end on October 1 of this year, which means it's a spending free for all the preparations process. And actually, President Biden has proposed a 16 percent increase in non-defense discretionary spending, which is massive, especially when you consider it's already grown um, about 25 percent since 2017. Okay, gotcha. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Mark Goldwine. Uh, we'll give out the uh, the web address again for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget so you can follow up on this conversation if you're so inclined. Stay tuned. Yes, I live in a single wide. 
it takes a four-wheel drive. Got a mean-ass dog whose name is Sickum Sam. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, just go to iTunes and uh, you'll find it there under your financial editor. And we're wrapping up our conversation with our guest this morning, Mr. Mark Goldwine. He is the uh, or a senior vice president and senior policy director for the Community for a Responsible uh, excuse me, Committee for a Responsible uh, Federal Budget, where he guides and conducts research on a wide array of topics related to fiscal policy and the federal budget. Uh, he's done work for the uh, Government Accountability Office, the World Bank, Social Security. He's also a professor, teaches economics at the University of California, D.C., and at Johns Hopkins University. So, uh, Mark, as we finish up here, uh, one of the other really big deals is um, the major trust funds are headed toward insolvency. Give us an overview of that. Sure. So there's a few federal government programs, some really important ones, that are funded on a trust fund basis, which means that they have a dedicated revenue source. The Highway Trust Fund, funded by the gas tax, Social Security by your payroll tax, Medicare by that other Medicare payroll tax. They're all going to run out of money within the next 15 years or so, 10 to 15 years. The Highway Trust Fund is going to run out next year. The Medicare Trust Fund, latest projections, say it's going to run out in five years. And the Social Security Old Age Fund is going to run out in 11 years. Um, you know, we always talk about you got to save Social Security for your grandkids. But the truth is you got to save it for your grandparents because a young retiree in the program today is only going to be 73 years old when that trust fund runs out. And that doesn't mean benefits will end, but it does mean benefits would be cut about 25% immediately and across the board. So how is that remedied? I mean, is this going to be one of those things where they wait to the 11th hour like we've seen in the past and then they come up with uh, some type of scam to uh, to bail it out? I sure hope not because the longer you wait, the harder it gets. If we had fixed Social Security in the 90s or 2000s or even 2010, we could have phased these policies in over, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, I served on the simpson Bowles Commission and we proposed phasing in Social Security changes by 2050. Um, even now, we've got to phase in these changes much faster, over maybe 10 years. And if we, if we wait too much longer, we're going to make either some abrupt tax increases, some really abrupt unfair benefit cuts. And we do need to, by the way, adjust both taxes and benefits, but we should do it in a streamlined way with warning. Or we're going to, have to as you said, cheat and find some kind of scam to bail out the trust fund. Yeah. So, like, again, I'm looking at and this is great on figure five in this email. And, folks, if uh, if you go to CRFB.org, you can see Mark's work and, and all the other good work that uh, that they do and, and the hard numbers they crunch. But I'm looking at this expiring in 2021. They want to enhance benef- unemployment benefits, additional weeks, expanded eligibility, three hundred dollars a week supplement to not work. 
And yet, you know, you're saying, like we all know that follow this stuff, that the Social Security Trust is going to run out of money. Why don't they address that now instead of all this other wasteful spending? Uh, well, we got to address the trust funds. Again, the right time to do this was probably 20 to 25 years ago. Okay, and we but should do the it as next best time is I now, right? I think it was the right thing over the last year to be focused on the pandemic crisis. But now, you know, while we still need to be vigilant on making sure people get vaccinated and making sure people can get the benefits that they are owed, we're pretty much past the fiscal relief part of this COVID crisis, and we should be turning to addressing these trust funds, starting with the highway fund that is going to run out of funds at the end of this year. I mean, let's think about it. We're talking about like a $2 trillion of new infrastructure, but we don't have a plan yet to actually finance the infrastructure that um, is already scheduled to take place. Right. Yeah. Scary stuff, I tell you. And uh, again, thank you for taking time to join us. Thank you for the work that uh, the Committee for a Responsible uh, Federal Budget uh, does. You know, we appreciate that. And um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Thanks, Mark. And uh, that does it. That was, uh, again, Mark Goldwine. He's a senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Go to crfb.org, and uh, you can check out all their really good work. And um, that does it for us, unfortunately. It's so frustrating when you look at all of this money that's being spent and wasted and you learn that, you know, less than 5% or 10%, whatever it is, it is actually going for COVID or for, um, you know, the health stuff, or now it's for infrastructure and what they're redefining is infrastructure uh, and how the government wants to get involved in, I think, inappropriate, inappropriate ways. It just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed today's program. Uh, we will speak with you weekday mornings on the Morning News Express, 5.56.50, live with Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick. And then uh, we'll be back here for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program next Saturday. Uh, just a reminder, actually, we're getting ready to take it down. Uh, the complimentary uh, report we have for you at murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's titled The Value of an Objective Opinion, Why Objective Financial Advice is Important. Um, just go to your uh, murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right on the homepage. Scroll down a little bit. Uh, tap the button and you'll get the download to your email. I hope you enjoy it. Hope you benefit from it. Uh, that's why we do it. And um, enjoy the rest of the weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com news radio 930 wfmd frederick a connoisseur media radio station seven o'clock